what's the purpose? Why are we doing this? What's the rationale? And does it do what we think it actually does? What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Stephen Osterer of the Baseball Development Group. Dr. O and I had a fantastic conversation over arm care, player development in the weight room, and we discussed several different strategies regarding mobility, strength training, and movement. Dr. O recently published a book called Recovery Applications for Baseball, which he shares a ton of info on what baseball players should be doing for recovery. And I'll admit, it changed several things that we do and several of the different techniques that I use as well. So if you're interested in the book, for the next two weeks, Dr. O was gracious enough to give our listeners a $15 off coupon. So use AOTC Rocks, that's A-O-T-C-R-O-C-K-S at checkout to get $15 off his recovery resource. But without further ado, here is Dr. Stephen Osterer. Dr. Osterer, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Absolutely. And I know we've been planning this for several months. I'm, I'm glad we finally were able to hop on the mic and, and get recording. But our listeners would love to hear about your background and about your story. So can you give us you know, a little short snapshot about how you got in the game of baseball? Yeah, um, I'll try to keep it uh, as short as I can because I don't think it's that uh, interesting of a story. But essentially, uh, you know, I was baseball and hockey guy in high school thinking I was going to go play hockey down south. Ended up realizing I was probably a little bit better at baseball. And in my senior year of high school, I had an elbow issue that pretty much took me out the entire year. You know, during that time, there's a lot of anxiety about, you know, whether or not I was actually going to be able to attend uh, Cornell, which, which is where I had signed on to play. Ended up figuring things out with, with the chiropractor, the uh, Blue Jays chiropractor at the time. You know, that really, you know, piqued an interest for me in terms of what I could potentially do from a, a career standpoint. Went to Cornell, pitched for the Big Red for four years. Not very well, but I did it. And then decided that, you know, I wanted to help baseball players and, and uh, you know, help develop and, and, you know, prevent injuries from happening and, and stories of, of kind of what I went through from happening in the future. So I went to chiropractic school, um, you know, up in Canada, that's four years. So when I graduated and in the process of graduating through that, I, I started working as strength and, uh, strength and conditioning coach. And then, you know, from there, it just uh, spiraled into training and, and treating uh, baseball guys. So, you know, inevitably, I wanted to open up my own place where I could see everything in under one roof. And, uh, you know, that led me to where I am now and in, in having the baseball development group, which is, uh, you know, high performance training facility in Toronto, Canada. So we just opened up in December. But, you know, it's been uh, it's pretty, pretty good ride so far with baseball. No, it's fantastic. And, and I follow you guys on Twitter. You guys are a fantastic follow. If uh, if our listeners aren't following you guys, make sure you guys go out there and do that. But talk to us about if a player wants to get involved and wants to join uh, BDG. Is there an application process? Do you guys do an interview thing, assessments? Take us through all of that. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a different scenario up uh, in, in Toronto. So essentially the, you know, the truly elite high school kids here don't play high school baseball. Um, it's all private. So they play for their clubs and, uh, you know, a bunch of these clubs have their own facilities. So if a kid wants to train with us, uh, it's, it means stepping outside of their own training facilities and their clubs for a little bit, uh, or potentially doing both in conjunction, which means it's a little bit more difficult to manage certain cases because we got to be aware of what they're doing outside of our place as well as inside of our place. You know, so for some of our kids, that means 
complete oversight of the development process in the winter. And then for other kids, it's trying to manage, you know, a combination of two different things, depending on what they're being asked to do with their teams. But, uh, you know, that's, that's really, you know, the big struggle that we face is, is trying to strike that balance between where they are with, with their, their actual team, because we don't have a team, um, and what we can get away with in our own facility and make sure that they still develop. So if someone wants to train with us, for example, and they're a high school kid, that's kind of what they have to figure out is how much can they actually be with us and get away with doing, you know, as well as can they actually make the drive because Toronto is a pretty big city um, and a lot of kids are commuting pretty far to get to where we are. So, you know, there, there are some difficulties in it, but uh, outside of that, we run a college program and, and we have our pros in the off season too. So, yeah, we just, as I said, we just started up. So we, uh, we are exclusive to a degree um, so long as we can keep the lights on at the beginning. But uh, we, we try to limit it to kids that we think can benefit from our services and, and can be in our facility uh, to develop enough, right? So most of our guys are there three, four days a week. Uh, the pros are there five days a week. And, um, you know, it's, it's a bit more of a commitment being where we are just because of the commute and because they, in a lot of ways, they're, they're, you know, they have to be with their teams a few days a week. So it can be tricky at times. I got it. Now, yeah. I, know, I know that the that the seasons are going to be a little bit different from Texas to uh, Toronto, but let's just, let's focus on the off season a little bit. So do you recommend taking a couple weeks off after the season, a couple months off? How does, uh, how does, well, I guess I should ask, what is your ideal rest period for post season? However long that we want to take off? Um, You know what? I think it depends, you know, a lot on the guy, right? So, you know, a lot of, for me, a lot of the rest comes down to, you know, how they're feeling and, and from a psychological standpoint, are they, you know, on the verge of, of burnout? Did they have a tough year? You know, how are they actually feeling mentally and cognitively and emotionally about the sport? You know, at least for the, the more elite kids, right? So you, you can get away with having a very, very small rest period uh, with pros for sure. But even with high school kids, it doesn't mean they have to come in three days a week and, and have a big commitment at the beginning. But, you know, a lot of the kids that we have, you know, they want to get in there right away just to just to get an assessment done to see how they're doing, uh, even sometimes just get treatment or go through through uh, some mobility stuff and, and just get started. So I think it's it to me, it's more about, you know, the monotony of the season and and uh, from a recovery standpoint and, and taking some time off and resting. Sometimes it's 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 a necessity from a psychological standpoint. But, you know, from a physical standpoint, it's not always the case. So for us, we recommend, you know, a couple weeks at, at least for the younger guys. But if someone wants to come in right away and get some work done, we, we don't have a problem with it. So uh, most of our guys are in, in two to two weeks to about a month because, you know, our off season really starts end of October uh, because of <laughs> because of the in season, you know, not starting until May. Uh, sometimes in March, it's it's, um, you know, pushes things back a little bit. But, you know, that's that's the general guideline for what we have. Yeah. Okay. And so I was having a conversation the other day because in Texas you can play essentially year-round in any of the southern states really. So a couple of our higher workload guys that just love to throw and mm. they don't want to take, you know, a month or two off, which most, you know, most recommend or at least that's the general recommendation to take a month or two off after the season. Now, yeah. if you were and and I don't and like you said it it's different for each person how much do they throw in the season? What what's their velocity like and and again, how many innings really did they throw throughout mm. the spring and the summer? But does that have to be consecutively for a month or can they take, and, and this is a conversation that I was having the other day is, is can they take a week or two off here and there and still have enough rest to, you know, be healthy for the rest of the year? Yeah, I think so. I think, 
you know, I think to answer that question again is, is, you know, you got to look at the individual and, and see how they're feeling. Right. So, you know, those couple of weeks off from a recovery standpoint, probably don't do all that much, you know, for our body physically, if we're talking about just completely shutting down, uh, we're not going to detrain as much as some people think. So, you know, from that perspective, we got to keep it in mind, but you know, for me, throwing something like throwing and taking time off from throwing, it's it's a pretty debated topic. But if you think of it from just just the standpoint of stress, there's not a lot wrong with continuing to throw so long as that the intensity of the throwing is is not necessarily high, right? So you can get away with continuing to throw uh, year round so long as we're managing how much throwing we're actually doing. That's my opinion. Now, obviously, there's mediating factors to that. Uh, you know, depending on how you know, how well they're moving, you know, how strong they are, how their performance is doing, whether or not they're having any discomfort or pain. But, you know, in general, taking that time off a couple of weeks to a month and, and cutting out throwing completely is not going to detrain you all that much. It's just not. And that means that we can get back to throwing pretty quick after. But, you know, for me, it's, it's keeping it more gradual to maintain uh, a little bit of movement, but to maintain consistent loading, because at the end of the day, our body is going to be influenced from a loading perspective on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so we might as well keep that in there. So that's, uh, it's more of an individual thing, I guess. Right. So for me, it's, it's, that really comes into question a lot less and it does uh, psychologically how they're feeling about the sport, especially with the kids we deal with, because a lot of them in Canada, they're faced with some pretty tough decisions about, you know, where they thought they were going to be and, uh, where they actually are from uh, a performance standpoint. Well, and, and it came out, I think, uh, this week that Trevor Bauer took like three days off and he's, and he's right. a pro guy. And yep. I, it's, it's just, you know, this past off season, I, we had a couple of unsigned seniors and so they're, they're throwing from January to May and then from May, and that would be their spring season. And then from May to June to July, and then they may take a week or two off in August. And then they're, they're trying to do fall showcases to try and get signed. And then there's colleges that are calling in December. And so I just, you know, for the listeners out there who have to deal with that too, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough decision that you have yeah. to make. But like you said, it has to be individual as individualized, but you also want to try and put the player first. So it's, it's, it's good to hear that you don't necessarily have to shut down for two months to make sure that everything is healthy. So that's, that's good to hear. Well, I mean, it's, it's so long as we're, we're keeping some of the other factors in mind, right? So, you know, if a guy has got good, good controllable range of motion, uh, with strength, and, you know, he's still lifting and he feels good and he hasn't had any, any, any real discomfort or pain throughout the year. I don't see a problem to it. I, I, I don't. So I, I take a vantage point of pitchers being a lot less fragile than we're giving them credit for. But, uh, you know, some people might completely disagree with me and that's fine. I think it's, it's more on an individual basis. And, and it is, like you said, it's very difficult to keep like an athlete centered approach to it or, um, and, and still be, you know, cognizant of the fact that, you know, maybe what you're doing isn't the healthiest thing. You know, we, a lot of people have different constraints on showcases and, and trying to be ready for certain periods of time that may not be perfect or optimal. So you do have to deal with them and, and it is difficult, but you know, at the end of the day, like you said, it's, it's very individualized and you kind of have to go, you know, with that. Not for sure. But what else should we be focusing on in the off season? I know getting stronger, getting bigger, but can you give us some specific things that, you know, we should be measuring throughout the fall to help one, our players get better and two, to help them stay healthy? Yeah, absolutely. I think the big one, uh, you know, that most people may be, may be missing the mark because we could talk about strength uh, as, as, as much as everyone else does. I think 
you know, what we try to focus on a little bit more is, is quantifying uh, and qualifying range of motion. So a big part of what we do from an assessment standpoint is trying to figure out how much controllable range of motion each player has and, you know, subjectively how that feels when they're doing it. So something that we do is, uh, you know, it's called cars or controlled articular rotations. Uh, it's taken from the functional range conditioning courses. And essentially what you do is you take, you know, you have the athlete take each joint in their body and they, they go through uh, as large of a range of motion as they could possibly go in rotation. And they subjectively feel out and, and figure out how that range feels on a daily basis, um, whether there's pain, there's increased tension. Um, as well as, as us subjectively, you know, take advantage point of looking at it and seeing, you know, is it smooth? What does it look like? And we even videotape that as well. So, you know, that gives us a pretty good idea at the beginning of the season, what, you know, interventions we need to throw at the player from a movement perspective, because if you can't isolate movement, for example, in your shoulder joint, um, when you try to integrate it with, with something else, you're probably going to be at a disadvantage. So something as simple as going through range of motion, both passively on the table or actively in, in something like this, like cars, is what we place a lot of emphasis on at the beginning just to direct what we're going to do. And almost all the time we find deficiencies that need to be worked on from a mobility standpoint, uh, which then directs us to uh, you know what we're going to do for a few weeks to improve that mobility. But we also come back to those cars every day and we just continue to build on that assessment in our warm-ups, right? So throughout the off-season, we're, we're really trying to hone in on and educate our players on, on how that range of motion or how their joints are feeling, how it's improving or, or, or potentially declining, or if there's pain or discomfort. You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to gain strength. It really is. But a lot of people uh, don't fully appreciate how difficult it is to make changes in range of motion. And, and, and the way that we do it, at least, is, you know, it takes up a lot of our time but we see significant results and, and at the end of the day, we're creating, you know, more movement options for, for our pitching coach or hitting coach to uh, use in, in the skill acquisition phase, right? So just quantifying that and qualifying it for our athletes is, has been absolutely huge for us. And I think it's a huge part of the off season is to, is to really get them to appreciate what that feels like and be able to use that information as they go throughout the, the, uh, the athletic year so that when they're in season, they can continue to use that as a routine in their warm up, and, and we can kind of keep track of how that is uh, developing over time. So you mentioned that you guys... Does that make go, sense? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So you mentioned that yeah. you guys go through a series of assessments. One, what kind of assessments are they? Are there any... Is there a, like a, the standardized ones or do you guys really just do your own? And then two, how often do you guys do those? Yeah, from a, a standardization perspective, you know, we do... Uh, depending on the age group, we'll we'll do some loading in the gym. But to be honest with you, that... You know, that's taken a bit of a backseat recently to doing these individual joint assessments. So I guess it would be standardized to the functional range seminars, standards, the controlled articular rotations, those the joints and, and moving the joints around and, and getting an assessment there. So we use that standard for, for how we screen and assess that. But from an on-table perspective, you know, it's it's a standard joint range passively. And then I ask them to do it actively as well. So it sounds pretty simple, but you know, you can get a lot of information out of that because at the end of the day, for us, the biggest thing that we're trying to you know improve on is individual joint strength and range that can then be transferred into the skill. I believe that a lot of the stuff that we do in the gym is very general and there isn't as much transfer as we'd like to believe. So our testing for strength conditioning is, is pretty simple. Um, you know, it's a squat, it's a deadlift, it's a, it's a chin up, and then we do some push ups. So it's, it's, 
pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple with more advanced guys. We'll get a little bit more advanced with some of our jumping stuff. But the biggest thing that we we focus on and continue to assess, not necessarily on a daily basis from on table perspective, but every couple of weeks is joint range of motion because it gives us a lot of information about how the athletes actually handling the training and and it gives us insight into what they're potentially going to, you know, show throughout the year when there's more load being placed on them. The the more people that I interview in the strength and development side, the more that the same lifts keep coming up. But I love that the individualized approach that you're talking about with a joint range of motion and the cars, we've actually added several of those different exercises to our daily routine as well for our uh, pitcher onlys and then some of mm. our two-way guys. And I love those. And so it, it sounds like you're taking a little bit different approach though, as far as recovery and, and some different modalities go as far as that. But talk to us about, you know, some myths that we really shouldn't, or we may not have to do, but baseball, kind of the culture and, and as much as we love that it's an old traditional sport, there are some things that we may not have to do anymore, if that makes sense. So are there any popular baseball myths that I don't want to say we're wasting our time, but we could probably invest our time better somewhere else? There are a number of different, uh, you know, not necessarily myths, but concepts out there that, you know, I believe we should be we should be viewing uh, with a little bit more of a critical lens. So, you know, like anything uh, that we ask our players to do, whether it's inter- an intervention from a therapy standpoint, it's an intervention from a, mo- a mobility standpoint, sorry, or a strength perspective or a skill acquisition perspective, we have to have a rationale for why we're doing it. And I think, uh, you know, in in our day and age with all the access to the information that we have through social media, it's pretty easy to just throw something in because someone else says it works. Well, it may work under a specific context for a specific individual, but that doesn't mean we should just be throwing everything at everyone, right? So um, the individualism plays a huge part, especially from a recovery standpoint uh, for me, because at the end of the day, uh, there's not a lot of evidence uh, to support a number of different modalities that everyone's using, even something like active recovery. If you go and look at the research on you know, how active recovery affects performance, it's pretty scant. And and it's not necessarily as positive for performance improvements or return to performance as we may possibly believe. To something like EMS units, which if you, again, go to the research, the there's not a lot to support a physiological mechanism for what it does. Uh, you know, but at the end of the day, an EMS unit has shown to improve the perception of recovery or her an athlete, you know, whether they feel more recovered after using it. And that's a positive thing that we shouldn't necessarily downplay. Right. So, you know, from a myth perspective, it's not so much viewing it as a myth, but it, it's it's more so looking at everything that we're asking a player to do and everything we're, we're throwing at a player and just asking what's the purpose? Why are we doing this? What's the rationale? And does it do what we think it actually does? So for me in the recovery world that, you know, and what led me to, to start writing about this stuff is, uh, I think there's a lot of people out there and myself included in the past who just threw everything at everyone because someone else was potentially doing it and saying it works. And I think that we can be better than that, to be honest. So I, I don't know if I want to, uh, throw out any more myths or debunk any myths necessarily. I would just encourage coaches and, and players and therapists, strength conditioning coaches to actually just go to the research and see what that says. 
um, and see if there's a sound physiological mechanism to whatever you're asking it to do and then fit that to what you're trying to accomplish with the athlete, right? So the one thing I will say definitely from a recovery standpoint is how we recover in season should be significantly different from how we recover in the off season. So, you know, whereas in the season we're trying to stay healthy and kind of survive, especially with pitchers from a, a soreness and fatigue standpoint. In the off season, we're trying to create an adaptation, which in a lot of ways may require us to actually incur some uh, fatigue and soreness so that our body can actually adapt, right? So, you know, for us, the off season is, is going to be a lot less focused on recovery modalities and, and we might throw them in here or there, but I want my guys to be able to adapt to the demands of whatever we're asking them to do. Um, I don't want to dampen the adaptation signal by, you know, flushing out uh, metabola, uh, light, sorry, as quick as I possibly can. And, and I just want the body to recover naturally. Um, and I want to create a natural adaptation to what I'm asking them to do. Whereas in season, I need the player to be, you know, ready to go as quickly as possible, which is a big difference. Oh, definitely. And, and I think that, that we would both agree that the main goal of the in-season is to help the player stay healthy and, and perform to their best ability. And before we get too in-depth with recovery, let's talk about just a general warm-up. So you mentioned that there's a couple of things that you guys do different. So what would a, you know, typical warm-up look like for you guys? First things first is we try to get tissue temperature up. So, you know, whether that's, uh, yeah, well, it's from a general perspective, but whether that's just using uh, something like a slider or prowler and, you know, walking with a little bit of load for five, 10 minutes um, or, or using something like battle rope, something simple that we can get the heart rate up and get the, the tissue temperature on the rise. From there, we go into controlled articular rotation. So, you know, that's, that's the big thing that we, we definitely hammer on everyone to do every single day, but we go through every joint in the body and take it through a rotation to, you know, almost take an inventory of how that joint is feeling on that day. From there, that will usually direct our guys into what they need to intervene with next from a mobility perspective. So let's say someone is doing a rotation with their shoulder and they're going overhead and they feel some stiffness in the lat uh, or Terry's major area. They'll then go into a mobility drill to get rid of that tension immediately. Uh, which will then open up that range again, and then we'll go into a into a more uh, dynamic component, which would be basically integrating those individual joints uh, together. So something, you know, something is as simple as moving our hips, like in a ninety ninety position, where we're just transferring from side to side to doing like glute bridges, stuff like that, just to start integrating the joints that we just warmed up, you know. And from there, it's depending on on the athlete and where they are. You know, we'll do our throwing warm ups or our hitting warm ups and get a little bit more specifics. So that will include some power stuff, whether it's with med balls or some jumps or some bounds. But, you know, I think that that process is a little bit different in the sense that we, we get our mobility stuff uh, or open up ranges almost right away because we do, we take the time to actually spend 15 minutes assessing our own joints and scanning for or changes on a day to day perspective. When we get into, you know, a little bit, a little bit more advanced athletes, so like the pros, that warm up may include me actually treating them. Uh, so depending on on what they find or what we see in that warm up, I may I may be treating them right away, because what we don't want to do is go into a a skill session with inadequate ranges or inadequate control of ranges, because that just takes away from what they're <laughs> what we're trying to do in the drill, right? So we put a pretty large emphasis on that stuff, and and the rationale is fairly simple from. A, a movement standpoint where we just want them to have as, as many 
movement options as they can possibly have specific to you know what they're trying to accomplish in in their task which will be different from pitcher to hitter right got it i love it and so you took us through your your uh, warm-up so you guys do whatever you do for practice and now it's time to uh time to recover afterwards so specifically talking about pitchers since we're in season, let's talk about the in-season recovery. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Does it change uh, regarding the pitcher? Does it change on whether his what his workload is, how he's feeling? And can you just talk to us about just some different recovery techniques that we can add to our routines? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if it's uh, my vantage point on recovery immediately after a game for a starting pitcher is pretty much shut it down. You know, the the thought process behind that is they've already incurred enough work on that day. And, and during the season is not the time to actually try and super compensate or make an adaptation. So by asking them to do more work, whether that's, you know, bands or, or rebounders or waiter walks or more throwing potentially after they've already done all of that stuff or sprinting or running to me doesn't really make a lot of sense. We like to shut it down right after they throw. And then from there, it's, you know, a little bit more individual on how they shut that down. So some guys, uh, you know, like to write in a journal and take five, 10 minutes to just throw everything out there and reflect on what they actually, you know, what they went through, what worked, what didn't work uh, right after the start, because then they can just get that basically mental diarrhea all out of their heads and they can just focus on uh, recovering in general. Or some other guys like to just sit and breathe. So for me, it's it's about shutting it down, trying to get our, our nervous system and you know, our biology back to pre-competition levels, which means lowering resting heart rate and getting into more of a, a parasympathetic state, which will be a little bit individualized. But but for the most part, it, it's writing some stuff down, breathing, get your nutrition in afterwards um, when you get out of the field. And, and that's about it. The next day will obviously be a little bit different depending on, you know, the player's schedule or demands or, you know, whether they're a high school student in you know, they don't have anything to do during the day or if they're a college player and they got to go to class. Right. So the next day is a little bit different. That's where we, you know, we, again, we take the time to, to go through, uh, that range of motion stuff and see and account for, you know, maybe there have been some deficits incurred from the throwing and then address them. Maybe they're in pain and they actually need some therapy or maybe they feel fantastic and we can go ahead and lift. So to me, it's, uh, again, it's, it's, it's very individualized, right? So if I have a player through a hundred pitches, um, you know, on a Sunday and they come into, uh, you know, our place on Monday and they tell me that their legs are sore and their shoulders are a little bit sore, why would I get them to lift? My thought process on that would be, well, I need them to, to recover, not, not necessarily make an adaptation. I'm not going to lose strength in, in, you know, in my legs and my shoulder because I didn't lift the day after throwing. So for me, it's, uh, it's dependent on their schedule as well, obviously, but you know, it depends on how they're feeling and how they're doing. And that, that, comes down to monitoring, you know, and you can get sophisticated that if you want. But for us, it, the monitoring process, a large part of it is just seeing how they're actually, how their joints are moving. Um, and you'll learn a lot from, you know, taking that sort of inventory every single day, because if you're, if your joints are, are handling that load well, that throwing load well, the next day you'll probably have a similar range of motion or, or a similar feeling of that range of motion as you did on the day that you were throwing. If you know that if you did way too much, then you're not going to have the same range of motion. It's going to feel completely differently. And that'll direct us where we need to go. So, you know, from a recovery standpoint, that's obviously for us, it's a big thing. We do a lot of isometric work because isometrics are fantastic for self-control from the player standpoint to put a little bit of specific load into an area that is either tight or a little bit sore. 
um, and they can control it, right? So they don't need an external load necessarily to perform the drill. So if they want to go, let's say, a 4 out of 10 intensity with an isometric to get an analgesic effect uh, and, and maybe take away from some of that acute pain or discomfort that they're feeling from the day before, it's a phenomenal tool to use that. But it also helps us restore range of motion. You know, it's not necessarily uh, an inflammatory process because there isn't really a shearing mechanism to an isometric because you're not moving a muscle anywhere. And it gets us, again, specific load into, you know, the joint, a muscle, connective tissue or whatever to help the uh, tissue healing process and, and try to align the fibers in a, in a specific direction. So we use a lot of those as well. Uh, active recovery and mobility stuff obviously is in there uh, just for players to get moving again, not necessarily because it gets rid of lactic acid. And, and that maybe that's a myth I could have talked about because lactic acid, one, doesn't exist, but lactate, what everyone is trying to mention, uh, is pretty much converted back to usable energy within half an hour to an hour after you're done throwing. So um, you know, if you're running your guys the day after to, to flush out lactic acid, that's, that's probably not the smartest idea. Don't get me started um, on lactic acid. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a bit frustrating. And, and, you know, in terms of recovery, if, again, if, if you're incorporating a modality that only has substantiated research behind it, that clears lactic acid to me, that <laughs> it doesn't really give you anything. Right. So sure. if we know that it's gone anyways, what, why do we need to promote it to go faster in, in, you know, an extra five minutes. But yeah, I mean, from a, from a modality perspective, you know, a lot of things have very little evidence. They really do. You know, and a lot of it is mediated by perception and, and, it, and it's, it's interesting to me just because, you know, something like icing, we use it and conventional wisdom with icing was everyone was using it after the throwing and, you know, everyone was saying they're feeling better. And I, the research actually supports that more than it does the contrary, but you know, players were using ice and they were saying they're feeling better. So why did we stop? We stopped because we found that, you know, it attenuated uh, or dampened uh, hypertrophy gains and strength gains. And, and that's fine. But perception can drive a lot of things. And, you know, if that's what it takes to get through a season, then that's what it takes to get through a season, even if there's no, there's, there's no research supporting it. The problem with that is, as well, is, you know, perception can be highly influenced by, by your environment, by your surrounding, by marketing, by advertising. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's an interesting game to play. But at the end of the day, you got to use what works for your athletes in season to make them feel like they're less sore to make them feel like they're less tired, uh, because at the end of the day, we're trying to survive in a lot of ways. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And again, I'm going to go ahead and leave the lactic acid discussion <laughs> for another time. But I'm I'm not familiar with the isometric stuff that you're talking about so i did a quick google search on my yeah. phone as we're speaking <laughs> and it and to be honest it looks like a lot of body weight stuff maybe some yoga mixed in is is that what you're talking about yeah. and and why should we yeah, so, be wanting to do that stuff yeah sorry so uh, an isometric uh is essentially putting force into a range of motion where you're not moving the muscle right you're not moving the joint so if you're doing a bicep curl for example you can you do, there's a concentric portion to the to the curl where you're bringing the weight up. There's an eccentric component where you're bringing the weight down. And an isometric would essentially just mean that you're you're staying at a joint angle and imparting force into that range, right? So we we use those not necessarily uh, you know just with body weight, but a lot of ways you can you can incorporate them, like getting into a stretch, right? So you get into an end range position and you essentially push uh, into an immovable object like the ground, uh, like in into a squat rack, like into a table or sometimes even to a band where you're not moving the joint itself, but you're imparting force into something. We really like to use those for longer holds, you know, 30 to 60 seconds, 
there is a decent amount of literature that says there there's you know an analgesic effect which basically means that by doing these you're you're going to potentially um you know lower perception of pain in tendons and connective tissue which is great um and by imparting these these isometrics in whatever joint angles we actually want we're essentially giving the signal to the cells that are going to be healing you know the especially the connective tissue cells on where to align like where to line up their uh position to be protective of, of force, right? So something like the UCL and the connective tissue surrounding the UCL, we do isometrics in a valgus position the day after throwing to just give a signal to our body, you know, where to impart and where to line up that tissue. So it's in line rather than it's just thrown down randomly. So it's, we use it more of a signaling perspective uh, from that standpoint. And if we're trying to use it for mobility stuff, then we go pretty hard you know, upwards to nine out of 10 contraction, nine out of 10 uh, effort into in the ground, for example, for you, for going after hips. And that can be very uncomfortable, but it's, it's extremely effective, you know, for improving more range. And we just, we just like isometrics too, because you can control the force yourself rather than someone throwing up, you know, weight on you. Right. So. No, I love it. I think that's something that we're all dealing with this time of year is, is coach, my arm, my arm is sore. I'm like, well, you threw a hundred pitches yesterday. So what can we use <laughs> to get unsore? But talk to us about, yep. you know, there's a line between just getting through the season and, and staying healthy and then still developing, or maybe there isn't a line. Maybe it's, maybe it is uh, in conjunction with each other, but talk to us about, you know, in season development, what are your recommendations as far as how we can still get better throughout the season while playing, you know, several games a week and having a, a day or two off as well for recovery and things like that. So talk to us about, you know, what's your vet best advice regarding that? Yeah. From a development standpoint, again, it, it depends on your schedule, right? So, you know, if you're a pitcher, for example, they just have a higher workload, acute workload that is. So if you're throwing three days a week in games then you're probably not going to have enough uh, left in the tank to, to get a, you know, an adaptation or to develop from a physical standpoint. But if you're doing less or if you're a position player, you absolutely can, you know, either get stronger or more mobile just because you have, you know, a lot less stress on you in season, not necessarily uh, just from a physical standpoint, but from a, from a, like a non-specific baseball standpoint, right? So a lot of times in the summer, you're, you know, you're able to sleep in a little bit more. You're not going to school. You don't have academic stress. You might not have financial stress, right? If you're a college player, there's, there are differences of stressors that, you know, we have on our body and our system in season versus off season. So, you know, if we're incurring uh, a lot less stress outside of baseball in season, that gives us our tank a little bit more reserve for us to be able to develop, you know, in season. So for us, we, we still train heavy in season. We try to get our high school kids stronger because there's always something left in the tank. You know, outside of that, we try to, again, we try to improve mobility and controllable range of motion. And, and we put our time towards that because um, we don't want to go backwards, but we can also still gain gain range and gain controllable range. And that can open something up potentially for for certain players. Got it. And I told you that that I may add this question in, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And this is just for baseball players in general. So is there any type of daily maintenance that you do for just everybody? Yeah. And uh I hate to come back to it again, but we, uh, on a daily basis, we, we incorporate those controlled articular rotations. Um, yeah, of course. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm a walking advertiser or a talking advertisement for them everywhere I go, but we, we throw them in daily just because it gives us, uh, an opportunity to explore and understand and, and figure out how 
you know, we're handling load. Um, and if you look at movement from, you know, almost the most basic concept, it's how do your joints move? Um, how well can they, how well can they move, uh, independently of each other? So for us, we're doing that every single day and we're spending, uh, between 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how we do them, just to take an inventory on how our body's feeling, how our range is feeling, how our joints are feeling, you know, from there, you know, we don't necessarily advocate, you know, or mandate anything else, uh, as necessary. It's more of an individual perspective, right? So if a guy really likes foam rolling and that makes him feel better, then he can do that every single day. There's no deleterious effect to that necessarily. Right. So it becomes a little bit more individualistic again, but every single one of our guys, uh, is doing cars on a daily basis, pretty much throughout the year, but more so in season, we, we really hammer that home. Perfect. And for the listeners who are wondering what the heck that we're talking about, I will link that down in the show notes and uh, I'll put the article. You wrote a fantastic article about it. And so I'll put that down in the show notes. But let's talk about, you know, as far as advice goes. Now, what mm. are some of the most common problems that you see with the kids that are walking into your into your building or just that you see in general? And how do we fix those problems? You know, for my population, Again, you know, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, the the biggest problem that we face is is accounting for what they're doing outside of our facility, just because of of the way that baseball is set up in Ontario. That you know, private instruction outside of their own club teams is a little bit harder to come by, and a lot of players are unfortunately doing something that we may not necessarily agree with, and potentially vice versa that their teams might not agree with what we're doing. So it's difficult for us to, uh, you know, walk or navigate those, those waters, but you know, that might not necessarily be the case for everyone else. The biggest problem I think generally that, uh, that we see, or I see specifically as a therapist is obviously overuse, but under preparation. So a lot of that acute, uh, workload spike at the beginning of the year where, you know, players are going from throwing maybe three days a week to all of a sudden throwing five days a week. Or they're going from throwing 40 pitch bullpens to throwing 40 pitches in a game, which is not at all the same thing. You know, the biggest thing for us, you know, maybe a little bit different than what's biggest for everyone else, but I I would highly recommend incorporating some sort of tracking uh, or monitoring process for how how much load that, you know, pitchers specifically are incurring from a throwing perspective, especially early on in the year. So the modus sleeve is great for that. You know, you, you don't have to be that sophisticated. You can count number of throws at a certain intensity, which is kind of what we do. Um, on a more mass scale than having, you know, a bunch of motor sleeves. But, you know, that is probably the biggest thing that I think coaches and, and even players and parents uh, should be should be considering, you know, especially throughout the year. But, yeah, more so, I guess, at the beginning. No, I love it. And, Dr. O, you sound like a guy that is continuing to learn and, and continuing to better himself. So what's something that you've learned lately that you're really, really excited about? Uh, you know, I guess – for me, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's continually refining the process of how do I, how do I as a strength conditioning coach and, and a therapist, uh, or basically just a movement person, how can I help accelerate the skill acquisition, the phase of our training program, right? So how do I get involved while they're doing hitting drills and throwing drills, um, and, and make that process go a little bit quicker or make quicker adaptations or, or quicker movement changes. So for me, you know, it's been a couple of years now where I'm, I'm really starting to, uh, you know, incorporate therapy while, while players are actually going through their drills. So if we see something, whether it's in the warm up uh, or in the drill process that, you know, we see as a limitation from a movement perspective, 
uh, I will intervene right there, um, whether that's with my hands or with a, a, a mobility drill or a mobilization of sorts. I'll get in there right away and throw them back in the drill to see if we made an immediate change. So that's that's something that we've uh, you know we've had a lot of success with, and it's something that I'm continually trying to refine because I obviously can't be I can't be treating ten guys at a time, um, and I can't have eyes on ten guys at a time. But that's also why you know educating players on you know how they're actually feeling from a joint perspective is is really helpful because you know they can start to intervene themselves when they have a better understanding and they have more self awareness of what you know, what they're missing and how they can actually address it. But for me, I'm really excited about where that's going to end up taking us and potentially quantifying it in the future with a motion capture lab. So, you know, it's, it's a process that I think, you know, is a little unique to where we are in Canada, but it's something that not a lot of people may have the luxury of having a therapist there um, who can do that. But, you know, that's, it's, it's pretty exciting what we've seen so far. Got it. Now, if you were going to ask your kids or, or the, the players that you work with, I, I should rephrase, and you ask them what is something that they just they love. So every single day they walk in or, or the day that you do this, they get all fired up about it. What would that be? <laughs> this might sound a little, uh, a little ridiculous, but on our high intent pitching days, uh, when we're trying to you know, either push the boundaries uh, you know, with pull downs or on the mound, we play a game called Radar Ball. So it's basically horse. Uh, where we use an underload bat and, uh, you know, we, we basically call a number. One guy calls a number, hits off the tee and gets an exit velo, right? And whoever's closest gets a point. But we use this time to, uh, you know, not just lighten the mood and get guys fired up. But, you know, when we're swinging for max exit velo, uh, we're getting a lot of rotation too, right? So, you know, on the one hand, we're really amping up the nervous system rotation specifically and, and you know, getting that fired up. But players love it and they love the competition getting in that mindset. Um, so we, we've been incorporating that all winter and it's, uh, you know, it's something that they absolutely love, but they, they may not love as much, uh, losing to me every time because I get to be in there every day practicing it. Right. So <laughs> we, we love it and guys love it. So it's, uh, it's pretty fun when you got, you know, a high school pitcher who's using an underload bat and gets to hit a hundred miles an hour. He thinks he's awesome. Right. So the guys get fired up, we get fired up and, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Oh, anything you can do to get kids fired up, I'm all in for. Now, uh, if you were mm. going to recommend some resources for our coaches to go out and read that have really that you go to consistently or have helped shape your coaching career, what would you throw out there for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I'm you know consistently checking in on uh, you know more of the the common stuff like Eric Cressy's stuff and and what Driveline's doing and Fangraphs and. Yeah, you know, just getting a, a general perspective on the baseball field is, is fantastic, obviously. And, and social media is great for that. And, you know, just scrolling through there gives me, you know, links me to something that maybe piques my interest and I can, I can, um, you know, go down a route or down a bit of a rabbit hole. But more consistently, I, I'm just reading research and I'm reading, uh, you know, textbooks from, from places like Rutledge where, you know, they bring, you know, all the experts in a field on a specific topic like skill acquisition and, you know, they put it into one textbook or two textbook. And, uh, you know, from there, that gives me a lot of information that I can use right away. But it also, you know, gives me a wider range of, of you know, authors and, and researchers that I can then go on PubMed and, and, and search up. So, you know, I would definitely recommend staying on top of the baseball field, but also, you know, going outside that realm a little bit and branching off and, and not necessarily reading, you know, all the research. There's a lot of 
researchers who are putting good stuff out there, um, like Rob Gray and, and his podcast, where it's a little bit more digestible for coaches or people who don't actually you know, have a background in, in some of the motor control research or uh, skill acquisition research, right? But just expanding out a little bit from baseball, for me, um, you know, that's, that's uh, a constant thing for me. But um, if you're going to look up textbooks or that sort of thing, just go to Routledge and, and check out what they have, Routledge.com. Got it. I'll link that down in the show notes. And I love... I, yep. I use all of those resources as well. And, and just to hit on the one that you talked about last, which is, or second to last, which was Rob Gray, does a fantastic job at shaky weights. And um, I will say this, for, for me not being in the movement and perception world, I do have to listen to it at one time speed because I usually listen to it at two times on everything else. <laughs> and then I usually have to do a lot of pausing and going, okay. What? <laughs> so, but it is very good. He does. He does. And it's all kinds of different sports. He talks about soccer law, talks about tennis, mm-hmm. but talks about baseball quite a bit as well. Uh, but yep. I love that. And so most of our listeners are college high school coaches who don't make, you know, a ton of money, don't have unlimited budgets. So if you were going to recommend something or your favorite coaching tool that was less than $100, what would that be? Yeah, you know, I, I thought about this question quite a bit, and honestly, it, it just goes <laughs> it goes back to cars again. For under hundred bucks, you can spend ten dollars and get uh, you know a lacrosse ball and a and a yoga block, mm-hmm. and um, use those two things to uh, give you some sort of feedback while doing movement movement drills or, or movement exercises, and you know really it really helps you you know hone in on a specific area. So yeah, you know, I would one hundred percent recommend you know coaches and players to try and incorporate some sort of movement routine just to, to get a much better appreciation for what they have and how they're handling load and getting something like a yoga block to, uh, you know, help you get into certain positions or even, you know, feel out different positions is cheap and it's effective and more than likely you're probably not already doing it. So you're going to see a pretty good bang for your buck, uh, return on investment right away. So yeah, I would definitely recommend going that route. Love that. Fantastic. Now, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, so you can check out my website, our facility at baseballdevelopmentgroup.com. Fairly active on Twitter when I can be, which is uh, Dr. Sosterer, one word. Those are probably the two best places. If you want to send me an email, just just go to the website and, and contact us there. I'm always happy to to have conversations with baseball people being from Canada and being still in Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes it can get a little bit lonely and having those conversations. So more the merrier. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty much an open book with a lot of things. So if anyone ever wants to contact me, I'm, I'm more than happy to chat. Absolutely. And again, Doc, thank you so much for being with us today. I will tell our listeners, uh, you did have the video for Skype on just a minute ago, and you look like you are just completely bundled up. And I, I, baseball season is right around the corner for you guys. I'm sure that's a, <laughs> sure that's a consolation prize. Oh, yeah. Seven weeks away. Man. Maybe, six weeks away. Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> Got it. Love it. Well, thank you again for coming on yeah. the show. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? No, not so much. I just want to say thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, as I was telling you before, you know, starting up a podcast and and uh, getting that out there takes a lot of work. And and you know, the baseball community, you know, should be appreciative to what you're doing. And I know I certainly am. And and listening to you know a lot of the stuff that you're putting out there is has been helpful for me. But you know, it's it's great for the community. And uh, you know, I'm just happy to be a part of it in a very small way. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. 
If you'd like to view the show notes or get in touch with me, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com or on the Texas High School Baseball Coaches Association app. Help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. But before you go, here's a quick word from our friends at Keeper of the Game. Hi, this is Ben Hochter, Keeper of the Game's Youth Ambassador and the Student Director of Baseball Operations at Reedy High School. Keeper of the Game provides great baseball experiences for kids with special needs and disabilities. Keeper also creates service opportunities for teams like Reedy Baseball. Check us out at KeeperOfTheGame.org, Keeper of the Game on Facebook and Instagram. Our Twitter handle is at BaseballKeepers via Keeper of the Game.